0: This week's episode is brought to you by gibbsclassical.com. This fall, you can study Paradise Lost with Joshua Gibbs. Beginning September 2nd, Joshua is teaching Paradise Lost for Beginners, a 14-week online course. The class is open to anyone 15 and older and is available on the student level and auditor level, which is perfect for busy parents who want to keep studying the classics. In the spring, he is also teaching Wisdom Literature for Beginners, which is a study of the Consolation of Philosophy and Ecclesiastes. You can find more and register at gibbsclassical.com. Welcome to this week's episode of Quiddity on the Circe Podcast Network, where we engage in the classical spirit of inquiry. I'm your guide, Brandon LeBlanc. In this episode, Katerina Kern interviews Jonathan Pajot about symbols, stories, and the patterns that lead us to God. Portions of this interview were originally published in the former journal, Issue 17. Here we want to present you with the full conversation, which was simply too abundant for print. In fact, this episode is only part one of the interview. Now let's join Katya and Jonathan.
1: Cool. Okay. Um, well, if we could start with just a brief introduction from yourself, what do you do? How did you come to be doing it?
2: I do several things. I would say that at the basis, I'm an artist. I am an uh, an icon carver, which means that I make images based on kind of medieval canon of images for churches and for people um, all over the world, really. And uh, that has brought me to study meaning in general and uh, symbolism in general, and so I also have a YouTube channel and a um, a blog and different venues where I talk about symbolism and, and how these old symbolic structures that our ancestors have had how they can help us today how can they how they can inform our world even even now.
1: Excellent. So um, why why symbolism? What do you think is the importance of symbolism? Why is this your shtick? <laughs>
2: well, right. you could say that one of the things that happened in the past few hundred years, let's say since the Enlightenment or maybe since the Renaissance, is we really moved towards a materialist way of understanding the world. That is, we've gained a lot of power, material power, you could call it, through analysis and understanding science and understanding Uh, quantifying things, calculating them, measuring them, predicting them. And so we've really increased our capacity there. It's quite impressive. But at the same time, what seems to have happened as a side effect of that is we've lost some sense of purpose and some sense of ultimate meaning, some sense of the reason why we are bound together as communities, as families, um, as cities, you know, All of these things seems to be fragmenting around us today. So we're noticing radical political polarization. We're noticing discourses compete with each other, narratives break down. People not know what is real, what is true anymore. And I believe that this is due to this problem of looking only at things that you can analyze and quantify rather than looking at their purpose, even in human terms, at the reason why we care for things. And so this symbolic way of seeing the world is a way to kind of recapture these meanings, to recapture the, the mystery behind um, communion, behind families, behind, you know, why do we think that cities exist as one? Cities are obviously not one thing. There are millions and millions and millions of things, but somehow we're able to see them also as one. And the symbolic thinking can help us understand how that works in terms of understanding how facts can be strung together in patterns, which we call stories, in in the sense of images, which take a bunch of stuff, bring them together in a frame and help us see that they're one within that frame. All of this can help us move towards meaning again.
1: So there's so many questions that I want to ask (laughs) based on that but I'm going to pull back a little bit to some broad ideas that I know you talk about. Um, when you say truth or reality, what, what do you mean? Not like what is true, but what is truth?
2: Yeah. Well, there's something, so there's a, a way in which we've reduced truth truth to something like factuality, which is that if something exists and we can touch it, we can count it, we can, Predict it, then that's true. But there's some, there's a deeper truth which is hiding behind that, which is something like, why do we care about that in the first place? Why do we care enough about something to name it, to give it an identity and to engage with it? And so once we start thinking that way, we come closer to truth. We could call that value, right? So truth is close. That type of truth is close to value. Uh, And you can understand it as something like an aim. We still use that word when we talk about a true arrow, right? An arrow that, that, that is aimed truthfully, that hits its mark, right? That's true in that sense. Um, And so this is, this is the higher form of truth and it's something people struggle to see today. But I think we've come to a point where it's really inevitable that we look at that again, which is, like I said, What is the value behind the reason why I care for this? And this will then lead us to something like virtues. Inevitably, even bottom up, you could say, will lead us to something like virtue, to something like love, even. When we understand that, for example, the world exists in a certain manner through love. That is the capacity for us to engage with something, to bring it close to us, to to bring people close to us without Destroying them without uh, annihilating their individuality, but rather bring them in this relationship of unity and multiplicity at the same time.
1: Hmm. Okay, so that makes me think of a different question I wasn't planning on asking at all. But <laughs> if if naming in Genesis it talks about naming as taking dominion, it seems like that's a Christian motif. Is that that's one way to take dominion? But you also talked about symbols as understanding, knowing, coming into contact with mystery. So what's the relationship there? If we're naming things and you, you mentioned that it's it's not um, oppressive, it's love is allowing these things to interact without one being demeaned. Um, but if we have to name mystery in order to come into contact with it, then how do we not take the mystery from it in the naming of it? Is that what symbols do? And how, how do symbols express things without taking dominion of them?
2: So, in the very notion of dominion, we can understand the idea of hierarchy and hierarchy is a, is a very bad word in the modern uh, mm-hmm. understanding, but the, but hierarchy can actually help us understand how this works, which is that every identity has an aspect of it, which is central and which is visible. You could say that is, that it is, it is lighted that has light on it. You can see, but that, but that, aspect of reality then you could say it goes in two ways it goes in one way towards the margin where it starts to break down where it starts to manifest exceptions where it starts to manifest uh strangeness you know and so all identities have that right think of a a chair right you know what a chair is and then once in a while you'll encounter a chair that it's like not really a chair it's a half chair it's like a chair mixed with a bench it's it's, it's in between, and that's totally okay. There's room for that in-betweenness to be part of identity-making, if you understand hierarchy. Uh, and then there's also a manner in which the identity also points to something which is, you could say, hidden, which is something like the mystery of the chair, which can't be contained in its particulars. Um, and so this is harder to talk about, but it has to do also with the purpose of the chair. So you could say that, right, the purpose of the chair is not in the chair, the purpose in, of the chair is in the use of the chair. It's in what we use it for, right? Do we sit on it? That's the purpose of the chair. But you could say something like there's an even higher purpose of a chair, which would, which would, be, which would be to be something like a throne, let's say, for the highest thing, the seat of the highest thing. And so the, the, the seat of a judge is like getting closer to what a chair is and its mystery But you can't totally name it. You kind of keep going higher and higher. And then you come ultimately to the notion of the throne of God, which is the heavens themselves. That is that there is a cosmic throne, something that is a cosmic purpose for the chair that we use to eat our dinner. uh, But it's kind of hidden even in that chair. If you understand the the chair, then you can even understand the manner in which the heavens are the throne of God.
1: Hmm. So, Do you intentionally or do you consciously Think about this in platonic terms
2: I I don't Necessarily use uh, Plato so Much I use mostly a Some church fathers is the People I because one of the differences Between Plato and the way the church Fathers described it especially a a church Father named St. Maximus The confessor is that the, The church Fathers understood that this was Man was the crux of this so Plato, the problem, one of the problems with Plato is that he has these forms up there and then he has these shadows of the forms. But it's like, where are the forms? Yeah. Like are, where are they? Like, where, where are they? But one of the things that St. Maximus does, for example, is he says, don't the forms, the laboratory of the forms is man. So the human is the place where the forms are gathered in. And so the purposes of things come through the human purposes. And this is really important because it comes down to, to the manner in which we perceive things right now, in terms of cognitive science, that we realize that we cannot abstract ourselves from these intelligent beings that we are. When we look at the world, mm-hmm. we look at the world through this lens of being human and having our own desires, our own goals, our own, our own. And this for the church father is not at all a problem. Because man is the image of God, then the human gathers these the logi, they would call them, the the different purposes of things in himself, and then he offers them up. So it's through man that they're offered up. And so the reality of the human chair right, can help you understand the, the higher aspect of the throne of God, you could say. But it's really through man, but it's through a form that we really are using and embodying and engaged with. So all the images we use for God are human images. That doesn't diminish God. It means that all of these images that we gather into ourselves are kind of projected up. And that's actually totally fine because we are the image of God. And so it, 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 it eliminates a lot of the problems of Platonism, which is that we don't have to think of a world of forms that is like separated from from the intelligence in man it's rather gathered into us and so it's it's actually a very good solution to the problem of complexity and emergence that many of the fields whether it's philosophy or systems theory or even uh, physics are dealing with right now
1: Mm. so i have two follow-up questions from that kind of in different directions um i guess the first one is to me this sounds like phenomenology do you think that this is a separate that that's more reductionistic than what you're talking about
2: yes it is similar to phenomenology i believe that i really do think that heidegger opened a door that he didn't necessarily have all the um intuition of what it was opening up again but i do think that what one of the things that phenomenology does is help us at least re-enter into this um into enter the space of being and understand the world as, for example, uh, Heidegger's notion of um, of Dasein is very useful for us today, because this idea that we see that that which presents itself to us is that which we care about. Right, Dasein is care. That is, it is the capacity for attention. Uh, the 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 uh, cognitive science uh, John Vervaeke calls it relevance realization is the capacity to notice what is relevant. Yeah. Now, the, the difference between phenomenology is that in 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 the way in which we talk about it it's we're bringing it back into a a type of metaphysics which includes the idea that humans are in the image of the divine pattern that is this is it's not just this arbitrary thing that we deal with but that it is actually the pattern of reality and that it gives us access if we bring that phenomenology and we push we look up then all of a sudden we can understand mysteries about the way in which the world, uh, lays itself out, let's say. Uh, so it's not just about, it's not just about analyzing phenomena through uh, the, the lens of experience, but it, it has a transformative aspect, which I don't think Heidegger would have necessarily talked about.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. So you talk about man as the gatherer of the how he um, I don't know, it ascends through him to God, or I, I'm not sure how you worded or that.
2: that but is, the offer, like the idea is to offer it as a body. right? Okay. So it's an offering that we give, like we basically offer ourselves and all that we gather into ourselves to God uh, so that they reach their full their full potential. And so then the dominion that we have over the world is not this cold kind of uh, the cold dominion that we see in modern science and modern uh, technology, but is rather should be a dominion, which is which is also a caring dominion. And which is also there to gather things and make them participate in them and make them beautiful so that they do become something like the body of God.
1: That's beautiful. And for for the ultimate purpose of of that sacrifice or the offering. Um, See, this is the problem. You're saying too many interesting things. So my mind is (laughs) in too many places um so then okay if if someone looks out at the world perceives what they choose to perceive or what care what their priorities and their vision allows them to see and then they turn and tell a story is it then possible to have a false story is fiction possible or what what would you say to to the the notion of stories being true or false what makes them true what makes them false
2: so So the idea is, it's it's again, hierarchy is the best way to understand this. And so you could understand the human person has different faculties and those faculties are organized in a hierarchy. And so at the top, you have something which is like a spiritual intuition, spirit, soul. The people use all kinds of words. The idea of a a spiritual capacity to encounter higher things, you could say, Uh, you know, God or higher aspects of, of reality. And so that's the highest part. Then you have something like reason which is, you know, that thing, that, the debating that exists in you, the, the, the weighing and the measuring of the, the good and the bad, all of that happens at a lower level. And then lower still, you have something like your desires and your more irascible nature, your capacity to get angry, your capacity to be hungry for different things uh, in the world. And so the idea is that your attention you have to purify your attention is the best way to understand it Hmm. because your attention, especially in this, in this world, tends to move down if you're not careful, right? It tends to move towards those lower aspects. Hmm. And so we call that obsessions, right? You, you become an alcoholic, you become an overeater, you become a a liar, you become Hmm. all the things that you can become as you are not careful of your attention. And so in that sense, you could say that there are false stories that we engage in all the time, right? We have idols, and these idols are usually these images of our lower aspects but, or of our reason, too. You can make an idol out of your reason as well. And so those, were the, those would be the stories which would be more and more false as you come down, let's say. But that stuff down there, all the desires and everything, there's nothing wrong with them. If they're properly organized, it's only when you attend to them completely that they become something like idols. Um, And so you can see, let's say in terms of a story, you could usually most stories will end up being something like going down and up. Almost every story is about that. So losing control, losing some higher aspect, facing a problem, facing a question, facing a challenge, then having to fight it out and then regaining that higher place, solving the problem, solving the, and so it could be an inner problem or it could be an outer problem, but that usually ends up being the, 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 the story of most things.
1: Okay. So the hero's journey is essentially every story.
2: Pretty much. I mean, I think the hero's journey makes it overly complex. You you can just understand it as right. I mean, situation problem, resolution or non-resolution like it's a situation problem and then outcome is usually most of most stories like the big cosmic story is that right in the bible from genesis to the from the creation of 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 the of the world and the fall to the new jerusalem it's like a it's an up and down Mm -hmm. i mean the down and up actually um and so but you sorry there are other there are slightly other there are going up and down too those stories exist as well um, you know, but they're usually, they, they're usually related to each other. So right, Moses goes up the mountain, gets the law, brings it down to the people, um, that's also one of the possible stories, which is actually related to the other, because you're bringing something above down to the people so that they can also
1: mm-hmm.
2: come back up, let's say from right. there, right. worshiping down the golden here. calf, you know,
1: if it, if it just left at the bottom, I imagine that would be a tragedy.
2: Yeah, well, usually so a tragedy would be something like like a, when things unwind, you know, mm-hmm. the 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 image of um of Pentheus in uh, in the Bacchae is like one of the best examples where, you know, his attention is is not on the right place. Like he 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 ends up being a little too curious about the wild women in the in the in the in the wilderness, mm-hmm. and so because his curiosity is too strong and he's too attentive to that, then he, he's literally ripped apart, right? He's literally ripped apart by the women. And so that's, that's the, that's at the bottom, right? It's hell. Hell is being ripped apart is falling into all this chaos. And because the problem with like the problem with these, these passions that we have at the bottom that we become slaves to is that we are usually slave to several of them and they fight amongst each other and so you 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 know you you everybody knows that you desire something and you hate it at the same time and it's happening at the same time and so it's like you're being ripped apart. That's the problem of the these lower these lower patterns you could call them.
1: Huh. That's that's a really good way to put it. So you talk about these patterns. What symbols or archetypes or elements of patterns do you think are most important for our culture now to understand? This is, gonna, this is
2: going to surprise some people, but I think that right now the most important to understand is really the, the, the patterns of, of monsters is the most <laughs> important to understand because that's where we are. The, the, the monsters and the carnival is, is the, the gargoyles, basically. And so our world is pretty much obsessed with that symbolism. And so you just look around you, you'll see it. It's everywhere. Like the symbol is the excess of the carnival and the hybridity, monstrosity, uh, exaggeration. All of these are everywhere around us. Now, if we're not able to understand them, then we, we won't be able to see both their, their danger and their opportunity. And so I think that that's the most important uh, pattern to understand right now. And you can I can maybe explain it quickly if you want. it has to do with this this idea the the problem of identity and the problem of exceptions that I talked about right so you have chairs and then you have the you'll say you have the throne of the judge or the throne of the of the god, and then you have lower chairs and then you have you know and then you have monster chairs, mm-hmm. and those exist like there are chairs that are broken there are chairs that aren't fully chairs there are chairs that are in between chair and something else. And so these exceptions, you could call them are part of the system, but they, they always appear at the margin of an identity. And so you can imagine a a nation, let's say, I don't know, a, a tribe. So a tribe has their own cohesion, their own unity. And then, you know, once in a while they will get people from other tribes, they'll marry outside or they'll do something strange. There'll be something weird that happens uh, and someone will come in from the outside that it's not part of the system. And that'll happen once in a while. And that person will kind of be on the margin, be an exception. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and, and that's totally fine. But one of the problems we have right now is that we're obsessed with the exception. We want every, we, we we're obsessed with exceptionality. And so all our social discourse is about glorifying the exception in every way. And because of that, what it does is it accelerates fragmentation Cause you can't have an identity full of exceptions. They'll, they'll end up ripping each other apart. And so, and so I think understanding that can help us find a more balanced relationship, but the exception is super important, or right? the fringe is very important in the story in the Bible, for example, it's pointed at quite often, right? You always have to leave a fringe on any identity. You have to leave the corners of the field until hmm. so that the stranger can come and gather it. You have to leave a fringe on your vestment. You can't tie everything up. You have to leave a little bit of chaos on the edge. Um, because if you try to tie everything up, you actually, it's, that's part of dying. It's actually a, it's a form of, uh, of asphyxiation, you could say. So you can't have a closed system. You can't have completely closed identities. In churches, they would have the narthex, which is this like board. If you go into like an old church, you'll have an entrance. You'll have a door. You'll have a little entrance and then you'll have another door and then you'll have the church. That, that part is called the narthex. And it's, it's like a boundary. It's like a, a border between inside and outside. And you have to, you always have to leave that in the world. Um, and so our tendency now is to fall into radical opposition where on the one hand, you know, you want to build a wall on the border. And on the other hand, you want to to not make any distinction between inside and outside at all. Like those two types of behaviors are are completely destructive because you can't close off identities and you also can't be completely open to everything else because you'll stop existing
1: hmm.
2: right if you oh, if you open the door of your house and you don't close it and you just let anybody wandering on the street come live with you at some point you're not gonna exist as a family anymore like I don't know how long it's gonna take you know if you're five and there are two more people come in, maybe you're still a family but if another five people come in, Six people, if they're more than you, you're not a family anymore. And so you have to find that balance between. And that's why the the symbolism of the margin or the exception and the monstrous is very important for us to understand for, for, like I said, for both its advantages and its dangers.
1: Mm. So that makes sense on a large scale, thinking about the pattern and the image of the margin and the need for that in society as a whole, what about for the particular what about for the individual who lives in the margin if they're un, if they're enfolded into the whole into the order whatever it is in society does what does that mean about the particular in its relationship to the universal. Can, can we just move things around from different categories? Does that question make sense? Like, No,
2: I'm not sure I understand your question.
1: If Okay, yeah, it's a weird way for me to say it. Let me see if I can explain it better. <laughs> if If we have the universal concept of the margin, it makes perfect sense that there would have to be margin in society. But if we look at the individuals within the margin, and we treat them as humans and particulars expressions of that universal idea, then can we still treat them as the margin or the idea, the universal idea that they once participated in as the margin? Do we enfold them into the whole and now they're no longer participating in the margin. Now they're participating in the order, because if so, that means that individual expressions of these broad universal ideas are, um, they can shift, they can move from one right. point to the next. So what does that mean about the, the whole pattern? It's in in okay. a flux.
2: So so th- there are a few ways to understand this. One is that that people are not one thing. That's that's really super important to understand. Yeah. And so we, we tend to we tend to simplify things, and that's fine. We have to be careful that let's say a, let's say a homeless person. Is not just a homeless person, Uh, but they're also a man and, and Joe and, uh, the son of someone and uh, the brother of someone. And so people have, have multiple vectors on which they have identities right now within a person you will have, most people will have some aspect of yourself, which will be on the margin. Some people more than others, right? You might have certain bad habits. You might have, uh, You might be poor. You might be of, uh, you might be ugly. You might be, there's a lot of things which can kind of put you on the margin for, for many reasons. You might be someone who, you know, like depending on what kind of community you have, like in, in an, in an ancient world, let's say, if you were, if you didn't have children, right, you would probably end up, you would be seen as a marginal figure. If you were infertile, um, you know, and so we have all our versions of that. If you were also a non-national, like and someone who's coming from the outside. Now, being on the margin has advantages and disadvantages. This is super important to understand that it's. we tend to think that the margins only have disadvantages. That is absolutely not true. Mm-hmm. Being on the margin has advantages if you can perceive it properly uh, and you can kind of see um see it in its right angle. And so to the extent that as a person, you are, have some marginal aspect to you, then you have to, you have to try to make the most of, of that. And then as a human being, then of course we should love people. We should love all people, but there is an aspect to which like, this is so natural that it's very difficult. It's going to be super difficult for people to understand. So, Imagine you live in New York, right? And there's a, there's a homeless person who is right. Who's on your, on your block. Now that homeless person has several disadvantages. Mm-hmm. They, they're, it's, they're super disadvantaged because they don't have a stable home. They don't have, they don't have, uh, you know, they have a kind of chaotic life. Maybe they're addicted to something, but they also have some advantages, which is that they have no responsibility. They have no attachments Uh, They don't have to pay bills. They don't have to do all these things. And so we have to understand it because some people want to be homeless, by the way, that's actually possible. We think that that doesn't exist. That really does exist. You know, Mm -hmm. some, some, some saints wanted to be homeless. Like, let's be honest about that. Okay. Um, So there's that. Now, when you encounter someone who is marginal, let's say like a homeless person, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: you will have to find a balanced manner with which to treat them. And so, The idea is, so the idea is, would be something like you give to the poor, but you have to be careful because most, unless you are an actual saint, you will not invite the homeless person to come live with you, Mm -hmm. which is possible to do, but most people will not do that. And that's, that's also okay. And so you, you have to be able to find a balance between, let's say, acting in love towards the margin while letting it be the margin so you don't want to force the homeless person to live in a house if they don't want to that is that doesn't work it'll never work you know because i know a lot of cities have tried and it doesn't work
1: mm-hmm.
2: especially for people who just don't want that they really don't and so this is the same thing it's so it's like there's like i said you you just have to kind of find that so for example like if you're a stranger in the land and you're not Of that land Then you have massive disadvantages You're not inside, you're outside You're kind of outside of the system But you're also free from the system Mm -hmm. So you also don't have You don't have the cover of the system But you also don't have the constraints of the system So there are ways In being a marginal person To make the most of Of your situation You know
1: Mm. Yeah So when you talk about um, people trying to reach out to the margin and make it a part of the center or everything. Really, I think you said the problem today is that everything is now going out and toward, towards the margin and just falling apart. Is this what you mean when you talk about the upside down world in some of your videos, you talk about that concept.
2: So one of the, so one of the, yeah, one of the problems of the, the modern world has been this idea of, of, of equality, right? It's a very messy concept because it's the idea that everybody is equal. Now, there are so many vectors in a human person that to say something like that is it, it it comes so close to absurdity. I, I can't imagine anything more absurd than that, right? Because what do you mean by equal? You mean equal in intelligence, equal in height, equal in attractiveness, equal in rich, rich, you know, like worldly possessions, equal in skill to, to, to hammer a nail. Like what is it like to run a marathon, like equal in what, what are we talking about here? Right. Um, and so
1: in income didn't you can you get that memo sorry so
2: yeah. so, so so now what so because of our kind of weird obsession with uh equality the problem is that that that's not possible that there's no way in which all humans can be equal on all vectors mm-hmm. but it's like a, it's like a disease it's like a it's like a weird parasitical thinking but because humans are not equal and can't be equal in the desire to make things equal, they always have to overcompensate. Mm. And so, so a good example is, of course, the trope of trying to, sh- to, 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 to to make us believe that women are, let's say, as physically strong as men. Like this has been going on now for decades. And so that's just not true. Like, it's just not true. It's true in the exception. It's not true in the pattern. It's not true in the, in the norm. But in order now, because it's untrue, in order to, to, to bring the point about, you actually have to overemphasize your point. Mm. So the idea is not to show that women are equal to men. You have to show that they're stronger than men. So in order to, to bring your point across, you have to show weak men and strong women. Mm. Right. And so and so you, you could say the same thing you could say. So it's like, let's say women are more maternal and more caring of children Right. And guys are more like rough and tumble, you know, like kind of play with the kids that way, you know, you know, kind of push them to the limit. And you're like, no, 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 no. we always have to be equal. Women can do that too. Right. And guys can be caring. And so then you, the only story you can tell is of a man who's at home and take cares of the kid, the kids. And then it's the woman who's out and doing and, and about and doing all the things. So it's like you, all you've done is you're, you have, you, because you want to make it equal, you're actually just turning the world upside down Mm. and repeating the same pattern, but in a way that is so unnatural that it, it causes it cause it brings people close to something like psychosis
1: Mm.
2: because you can't, you, you it's like, why, why force people into roles that are so unnatural to them? Natural. Like you, you, they have to embody this upside, this contrary to themselves so strongly that they make themselves sick and, Like if you just let, let things be, there would always be women that would be masculine and there would always be men that would be more feminine, but you don't, you just let it be, you don't have to make it into a social, let's say a social goal to invert that.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So thinking about this, the masculine and the feminine, um, would you say, well, I have two questions. One is, How do we know what the proper forms are? Right. You say, you know, it has to be natural. We're subverting these forms. We're forcing it upon ourselves. And it's torture. I mean, I added that word, but we're 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 creating just a very inorganic, monstrous, I guess, um experience as humans. Um, one, how do we know what the proper patterns and forms are? And well, I'll let you answer that first.
2: Um, I mean, they're a mix of, you could say they're a mix of universal and, and particular. That is, that they're not, let's say the relationship between masculine and feminine is not exactly the same in all cultures and in all times. It changes, it varies, uh, but it, it necessarily has a certain pattern to it. And you could say that all the ways in which we've tried to supplement gender with technology Mm-hmm. is the way in which it, it goes a little bit awry, you know? And so, so you could understand that in a world without birth control, for example, most of what we're going through just wouldn't exist. It just wouldn't be possible. Right. Just couldn't happen, you know? Um, and so now they're trying to compensate that with that for, with more technology. Which is that, like, for example, in Canada, we have these massive systems of like maternity leave, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like these huge, it's like these huge state systems where we're financing, we're, we're financing maternity leave because we're realizing that there's a problem when you turn the world upside down, that the world stops to exist. Mm-hmm. That is, people just stop having kids, which is what happened. And so people aren't having children. So oh, now yeah. you have to. Sorry. Sorry.
1: I didn't realize that's why they extended the maternity leave.
2: I mean, that's, that's obviously why they did that because they're realizing that women aren't having children anymore. And so it's like, we have to, or are they realizing that women will stop their work Mm -hmm. and then we'll just have kids. And so they're like, no, 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 we need to make this, we need to continue this illusion that like, men and women are exactly the same and they have to do the same things. And so we'll keep supplementing it with like bigger and bigger systems in order to preserve this illusion that we've given ourselves. So that's what we have like here, not only that, but we have subsidized, um, subsidized uh, daycare. Right. So it's like, I think it's like $10 a day daycare. Wow. But it's all subsidized. The whole thing like, like maternity leaves plus this daycare system. It's all subsidized by the government.
1: Huh. Interesting.
2: And so, so you can see like what it takes to preserve a system like that. And so yeah. you can understand that if any, anything massive happened, like if there was really like COVID was not a real, like a real crisis, if there's an actual real crisis, a war or a famine or something, like this all would go away in a blink of an eye.
0: Thank you for joining us on Quiddity as we refreshed ourselves at sisters of Learning dug long ago. Drawing from Springs Too Deep for Taint. Join us next week for part two of Katya's interview with Jonathan Pageau, and be sure to check out the other shows on the Cersei Podcast Network.